Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, Episode 8. My Hard Drive Died is a podcast where uh, we talk about hard drives, um, forensics, different different aspects about a hard drive, what happens when it breaks, how do you fix it, what causes it to break, what's it made of. And the man that teaches us this is Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing good. How are you, Steve? Awesome. So what's new with you, Scott? You doing any uh, conferences lately or... Yeah, I have a I have a conference coming up in about two weeks. I'll be doing ShmooCon in Washington D.C., which is kind of like a security conference. But uh, I'm going to be doing a data recovery talk about diagnostics primarily, uh, how to break down diagnostics and do things like that. And uh, and I have a pretty busy schedule because it's right back to back to a class. So I have a class in Atlanta from February 9th to February 13th. And so there's still seats in that class if anybody wants one, but uh, it's it's going to be end-to-end data recovery, taking drives apart, putting them met together, and I'll be mentoring the whole process uh, and actually teaching both hardware and software how to actually uh, go through the process of doing your own data recovery and starting basically your own company uh, if that was that was the direction you want to go. So, Man, I so want to go to one of your classes. How many people normally attend them? Usually it's somewhere between 25 and 35, but for the Atlanta class, this is an unusual class for this year. It's going to be a smaller class, so it's more personal, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because we don't have a conference. Usually most of my classes are taught that coincide with a conference. So there will be a, a big conference and a week-long thing going on, and then my class is kind of like you can take the con- you can do the conference and do the class at the same time, uh, so you can go back and forth between vendors and things. This one is going to be more personal. It's going to be a, a small event. Um, it'll probably be something like 10 to 15 people in the class, and that'll give me more hands-on time with the people, but it'll be a smaller event here in Atlanta at one of the uh, – it's like a Hyatt or something here in Atlanta. Okay. And each person has their own kit. Like all the tools they need comes comes with the class. Well, uh, there's there's the, there are some tools that come with the class. Mm-hmm. The only things that they don't really get in the class are some of the more expensive stuff. Like we have a a platter tool that we use to remove platters, and the kit's about six hundred dollars. And so we we only have enough for people to use in the class. It's not something we can give away with the class uh, for the expense of the class. Right. But they do get um, a packet of all the other tools, the hand tools and things that we use, uh, torque screwdrivers and and uh, some surgical tools and things like that that we use for actually assembling and dis- disassembling the drive. But they um, but so it's kind of a split between the two. Um, hmm. In my distance learning package, I, I sell this class in a box online. It actually comes with the platter kit and everything else. But the offset is is that we don't have the expense of going to a location and renting the facility and and doing all the things that we normally do when you have a seated class. So uh, so that's kind of the offset between the two. That some will have uh, the platter tools and stuff if you buy the kit remotely. And if you take my class, you get a lot more information because we're going for you know ten twelve hours a day, and you can ask your own questions. And sometimes people bring drives, and we examine the drives in, you know physically inside the classroom and do things as well. Um, and sometimes we actually do the data recovery on those drives they bring <laughs> while we're there. So where they would normally send off a drive like three thousand dollars, you know, to get it recovered or right. whatever. Um, you know, they get it as part of the class. They get to go back with their data. Damn, so. That's a nice bonus. I bet a lot of people bring their drives hoping that you'll take a look at it. Yeah, I mean, we do what we can. We do have a lot going on in the class, but, you know, there is a there is a portion where we actually have labs. And so as you catch up on your labs and you're able to do stuff, I can look at drives and we can spend time together on them while right. you're there in the class. Yeah, And that sounds like a lot of fun. It's so you basically have like a uh, class where you buy a kit and they, it comes with videos, or or you do your live classes, right? Right, exactly. the 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 kit in a box comes with all the tools that you need to do pretty much end to end the whole thing. Uh, but I have a 500 gig hard drive which has all the class material, the regular class material loaded on it. But it also has um, about 80 or 90 hours of MP3s from two different classes, and then it has a another uh, something like 80 hours of video. Um, includes one complete class. I have some sections from other classes that I've taught where things were different or they were unusual. And then I also have um, the lab material where I would normally mentor somebody and sit down and do hands-on stuff with them is recorded separately. And so there'll be separate recorded sections where they can actually watch those videos as well. Hmm. And because it comes on a hard drive and it's not online and stuff, they can actually, you know, they can it, they keep it forever. It doesn't expire. So yeah, you don't, you don't have to worry about slow download speeds or anything like that. Right. Exactly. Well, and it's high quality, and they can watch it over and over and over again. So, what? How much does that kit cost? It's three thousand dollars. 
But that comes with all this equipment. Like, does it come with that platter tool you were talking about? That- yeah. Okay. Yeah, it comes with over $1,000 worth of equipment and software because uh, we actually have a section where we're doing software recovery in the class as well. And so it comes with some of the tools to actually do software recovery, the commercial tools, and they're licensed to that student. Uh, yeah. uh, that's all. So- I mean, for, for a, a job that's, that you have to charge a premium for, like like uh, data recovery, you know, $3,000 might sound like a lot to some people, but... In the scheme of things, if you're doing going into that business, right. it's it's like nothing. Well, the majority of because like if you go to some high end uh, data recovery places like OnTrack or or Drive Savers or something like that, they're charging two thousand dollars plus per drive. Right, exactly. Um, usually to compete with them, most of the people that I'm teaching or that are doing it as a business are charging somewhere between like twelve hundred and fifteen hundred per drive. So two to three drives, you've paid for the material exactly. and you have a business and. We've I've taught over 200 people, and a good percentage, uh, 50 or 60 of them, are probably running a business separately on their own. And I keep in constant communication with them, so I know you know some of them are very successful at it. They're doing a great job, hmm. and some of them started the day after they walked out of the class. So <laughs> good for um, them. Yeah, so it's it's completely plausible to use this material because I focus on. I come from that hacker mentality of if I, if it's if it's useful, then you can walk out the door and use it today. Um, some people do a lot of, you know, a lot of theory and then maybe you can figure something out later on, right. but I try to do things that are all like hands-on. Totally. You can walk out and use this tomorrow. Totally. Um, and not just for data recovery, for forensics as well. There's a lot of people who, uh, want to do the job and testify about it in court or prepare the material and forensics pays more, to be honest with you, it pays more than data recovery. Hmm. So if, uh, if this material can be used forward for that, um, Somebody has a potential of making a, a lot more money. How does the payout work for doing forensics? Um, usually, there. See, this is where the difference comes in between data recovery or even IT work from that standpoint. Because I ran an IT company for fifteen years too. Um, most of the time, you do a job, or and you may have a down payment from the client, and then after you're done with the job, if they're satisfied with the job, they pay you. That's the majority of data recovery and IT work. Uh, for forensics, almost all of it's just like a lawyer would do. You tell them up front, this is your engagement fee, and you have a contract, and the contract is signed, and somebody pays you X dollars up front for a job to be done. And then once you're done with the job, there's no arguing about what you've made or what you've done. You've done a, a job that had a contract, and you were paid. So you already know that you're already successful when you got paid from that standpoint. You've already gotten your money. Um, and so that, that to me seems like a lot better than the argument at the end always, because it doesn't matter how good you are at IT work, there's almost always an argument, uh, <laughs> over, over time. It's always like somebody's trying to discount the work mm-hmm. you already did. Right. Um, how much so, on average is like a forensic job? Um, the majority of smaller jobs are $2,500 plus. Uh, so if you're dealing with a civil case or you're dealing with something like a private investigator job or something, you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of $2,500 to $3,000 that you'll probably potentially make per job. It's about 12 to 15 hours of your time. Uh, and sometimes you're doing a little bit more, especially if you're like learning a new topic or something while mm-hmm. you're doing it. But there's not somebody hanging over your shoulder the whole time that you're doing it. So that's right. that's different from that perspective. Uh and then when you're dealing with criminal cases, you're dealing with a lot higher end type of situation, but you're typically looking at a larger payout. So you're looking at, you know, f- the engagements normally are going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of five to $10,000 to start. And then it depends on where you're going to go from there, if you're going to testify or if he's going to plead or what's going to happen. <laughs> um, so it's it's typically a lot better engagement from that perspective. But I mean, I'm not going to kid you. It is hard work. I've done, I've probably done a hundred civil cases and a couple of dozen uh, criminal cases, and it's it is extremely hard work. Is it? It's cool work, though. I mean, that's the stuff you see on TV. <laughs> it's you. You see some of it on TV, but keep in mind, there's only a couple of things that you can do that are a crime with a computer, and so uh, you're usually seeing some pretty bad stuff in some cases. So, uh, do do these criminals like when you're sitting up there in, in court and like you're telling them what you found? Do you see them like getting all bent out of shape? Like I can't believe this guy cracked this or something like that. In some cases, uh, usually you're you know it depends on who you're hired by and who your opposition is. But most of the time, there's a discovery period, and a lot of that material is already disclosed before okay. you got that far. You've already done depositions. You've already you've already turned over a report. And so, I mean, in theory, that's the idea behind court is it's not supposed to be some magical made up thing that you actually just come up with while you're on the stand. <laughs> um, in in civil cases where it's a lot shorter period, and sometimes they choose not to do discovery because of expense. Mm-hmm. Because uh, discovery can be extremely expensive uh, if you're paying everybody's, you know, 
expert to come and show up and you're videotaping it and going through that whole process, you could end up with a day costing you $20,000. So discovery uh, is where you find all the facts and present them to the other side? Yes, pretty okay. much. Uh, and then typically if you're an expert, then you've already written a report. There's already something that you've already turned in or you've gone through some process. It really depends on the lawyers, what the requests are and those kind of things as well. But most of the time, the, the content is not a mystery when you've walked in. Uh, in some civil cases, divorces or something like that where you know the whole point is, hey, he found this porn or something like that. That may be you know, last-minute kind of thing that you might show up with some of the porn. But typically, they've gotten the, the material a week ahead of time or okay. something, and somebody just doesn't know what you're, what you're looking at. <laughs> so Interesting. It's an interesting field. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's it's, it's great, uh, you know. And the data recovery stuff that I do is this niche that's in between forensics and data recovery because uh, the issue becomes in forensics that they're only typically dealing with a working drive. They're almost always dealing with a drive that you know they've got data on it, and this is why we're examining it. But every once in a while now, especially with the quality of drives that we have being made today, you'll walk in, you'll try to copy it, and it'll be a dead drive. Hmm. It'll just be, and then what do you do? I mean, because you don't have evidence. You don't have a case. Wow. Is it coincidence that that happened, or do you think that somebody sabotaged the drive? Well, I got into into this business because it was originally sabotaged because I had a a case where um, the court order basically said, turn over all your hard drives to this guy. So they went into the back room, and they pulled out, you know, 27 bad hard drives to give them to me and then try to blame it on me. Uh, so sometimes it's that, but most of the time it'll be something like you started off and you're making an image and the drive might fail in the middle of the process mm-hmm. and then it never comes back or you, you know, it's really, it's, it's a very difficult task to go on site and do things under court order because a lot of times what'll happen is, um, uh, I mean, you're going into a touchy situation already and, as an IT guy, you already know the thousands of things you'll see when you go into a place, but there's already kind of this understanding that something's messed up and that's why you're there. But when you're doing stuff under a court order for forensics, you have to assume that that guy's stuff is perfect and he wants it the way it was when you came in. Warranties are valid. Everything's exactly the same. So when you start opening cases or cracking something open or a pen pops off or something like that, you may have a different scenario that you have to deal with that's much more complicated than IT. And he's going to be apt to sue you. He wants to sue you. And he's not your client most of the time. Somebody's hired you to come in and do this under a court order. Hmm. And so they're just looking to to go after you. Oh man, well you're the wrong guy to give 20 bad hard drives to. You're no, probably, yeah, you're, for the most part it's it's been really smooth <clears throat> for me. Yeah. Uh, I've had very very few problems, but most of the time I can tell you, I promise you a lot of it's just because of my, you know, 15 years of experience being in the IT world, knowing what I'm going to deal with in some special case. Hmm. Neat. So. Last thing I wanted to ask you is how much of the uh to go to one of your courses cost? Um, if you're at a conference where there's actually a, a conference that's involved, yeah. um, there's there are sometimes discounts depending on when you buy tickets and what you do. Uh, most of the conferences are going to be like forty four hundred dollars uh, because you're also getting that conference three sure. or four days in addition to the class, which will be a week long. Uh, in a smaller event, normally we're looking at somewhere between uh, thirty six hundred dollars or so for like the one I'm doing in February. But in February, I've got some special things that I can do for listeners of shows and things like that where I can give discounts and I can get it, you know, 3,000, 3,200, something in that neighborhood. So I can, I can pretty much get like $1,500 off of the, of the, uh, of the conference version. And this is going to be the only one we're doing this year. That's a personal type event. The uh, rest of them are going to be in London or Australia or Washington, DC or something like that. So most of them are going to be traveling. Um, and some are going to be overseas. So if people really want to do it, now's the time because <laughs> you won't find a better price for the year. There you go. Yep. I'm sure a lot of people are interested in that. All right. Well, uh, one of the things that we had lined up for today was to go over an email from a listener. Okay. So let's go over this. This is from Chris, and he asks three things. We'll just go hit them one by one. He says, Steve, love the podcasts. Uh, three topics I'd like to hear Scott address in an upcoming uh, episode is recovering data from a drive that spent time underwater. So let's go over that first. Okay. All right. So uh, there's some unusual things that happen when a drive's been underwater. But, uh, I mean, let's talk about natural disasters as a whole, too, not just underwater. Um, because you also have other ones like, you know, your house burnt down and the drive was in your house and it burnt down. So some of the, some of the same kind of things happen uh, with regards to that. The nice thing about it being underwater is that most of the time, 
if it was off, especially if it was off when it got underwater, that the platters are probably still in good shape. The electronics may actually be in good shape too. Uh, so there's some questionable items there. But depending on the water that it's in is the water that you should keep the drive in. So in other words, let's say it's in New Orleans and I got to drive from New Orleans. Mm -hmm. If it was in a building that was underwater and someone goes in and gets the system out, the first idea they usually have is let's take it out and let's dry the drive out and then we'll see if it works. And that's a terrible thing to do because you have sediments that dry to the platter. You have corrosion that starts right away. Um, So really what you should do if you get a drive that's in water is that you should get a Tupperware container. You should fill it with the same type of water. So if it's salt water, fill it with the same salt water. If it's fresh water, do that. Don't switch containers because if you go from from salt water to fresh water, you may cause other problems or different types of sediment or whatever. Um, But fill it with the same type of water, put the drive in it, submerge it, and then try to get all the air out of it so that it's sealed so that you can get it somewhere that a specialist or an expert can actually deal with it. That would be your best solution. Um, You want to make sure that that you haven't tried to turn it on because if there's anything wrong, you're just going to scratch the platter or the salt or the sediment from the material is going to stick between the heads or something. I guarantee you there'll be something that's really bad. Um, You know, this is where that whole thing about drives being hermetically sealed comes up sometimes because a lot of people believe that they're hermetically sealed, but hermetically sealed would mean that you have no exchange with air from the outside to the inside of the drive. And if that were true, then the drive wouldn't get wet either. In other words, the inside of the platters and the head assembly wouldn't get wet. So they're not hermetically sealed. They are not hermetically sealed. There is an air filter. Uh, Sometimes there is multiple air filters with holes. There's one on the top of the drive. Sometimes underneath the bottom of the drive Mm -hmm. or under the board, there'll be some pinholes there where they let the air pressure balance Mm. uh, in between the metal and the filters, the air filters that are inside the drive. But they actually rely a lot on air pressure um, because if you go someplace like in a high Colorado mountain, the air is going to be thinner than it is going to be uh, at a you know at sea level or something. Um, and the head has to fly a certain height over the platters, so the electronics can actually calculate what's called the flying height <laughs> and can. Uh, spin up the platters or slow them down depending upon what the speed is that's necessary for the heads to fly over the platters. Unbelievable. So, uh, Are those holes big enough for water to get squeezed through? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I've had drives in. I had drives from New Orleans and things as well. So, uh, you know, the worst thing is in some cases, um, you know, they start to corrode right away. So that's really bad. And the screws on the outsides and stuff will actually in some cases be so so eaten away that you can't even open the drive in some hmm. cases. Um, the worst thing about you know, other natural disasters like uh, like fire, um, in order to repair the drive, you need to know model number and, and, and dates and things like that. Um, in a drive that's been in the water, most of the time you can still read it. They've, they've got some coating or they're in plastic, and so you're okay. You can read the drive. But uh, in fire, the label gets burned, and sometimes the board gets burned. Sometimes it's hard to even tell what it is. Uh, and most of the time, the platters are intact inside the drive. Something else melted. The uh, head assembly and the plastic inside might have melted, but the, the platters themselves might be intact. Hmm. Um, but you can't find a label, so you can't find a donor drive Jeez. so that you can replace the parts. Right. On the, under, in the underwater drive, you said, like, put it in the same water and then ship it off somewhere. What, what if he wanted to try to fix it himself and not well, ship it somewhere? What would he need well, the first thing is is that the platters are probably going to be okay themselves. You'll probably be all right with that. But what you're probably going to end up with is damage to the motor, damage to the head assembly, and maybe the electronics. If it had been off, there's a good chance that the electronics are intact, but he may still have to replace his heads. He may still have to actually move the platters to another uh, spindle, to another motor. So what he would need is he'd have to acquire a donor drive, which is an exact match for this particular one. He'd have to use a platter removal tool and move the platters to the other drive and then move the head assembly to the other drive. And then if he has a good match, if it's a, if it's a perfect match, he may be able to use the electronics he has, the board itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may use some electronic cleaner or something like that. There's different kinds for cleaning boards, for getting rid of uh, deposits and stuff on the boards. If he's able to do that, he can move that to the other drive, and maybe it will work. If that doesn't work, depending on what the drive is, sometimes there's a chip on the board itself that needs to be unsoldered and resoldered. We talked about that in other other talks. Uh, So depending on the damage to the board, he may have to take that chip off and move it to to another board, to the donor's drives board. Hmm. Uh, And so there's a chance that he can do that. Now you'll have a real difficult time with the alignment because 
usually in the in the real world, we try to make a choice. Either we're going to move platters or we're going to move heads. We're going to try not to do both if we can avoid it. Uh, sometimes we have to. Um, but then you have an alignment problem with your platters and an alignment problem with your head assembly. So it's a, it's a really really strenuous process to make that happen. Oh, man, I'm getting it's making me like exhausted just thinking about doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a lot of work, but when it works, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So the donor drive the electronics. Oh, you were talking about the cleaner. That's what I wanted. To, that caught my attention. There's certain cleaners because, like, say for example, there's a lot of lap from laptop repair. People spill stuff into their laptops, and it gets there's corrosion that appears on the the uh, the motherboard and different circuit boards. Right. Uh, what do you recommend for cleaning off like that corrosion or or getting that well, to to hopefully trying to revive that that motherboard from the dead? Usually what I do is um, I go to electronic stores. So, I'll, you know, like Fry's actually has an electronic section that has a pretty good selection of uh, some basic cleaners that you'd use for electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are fine for boards so that you can actually clean them. So there's there's several different uh, chemical ones that are actually made for just cleaning boards. Uh, it's a spray. I have it listed here somewhere. Uh, I just don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But uh, there's there's different levels of cleaner as well. So, for instance, if you wanted a cleaner for the heads, you would not normally use any of these. There's actually a 3M cleaner that's very, very expensive. It's like $1,000 an ounce to actually what? clean the heads. Yeah, it's, it's, what? A, it's a special type of cleaner that's specifically made for head assemblies for cleaning them, and it's extremely expensive. Um, so a very small bottle can cost a very large amount of money. $1,000 an ounce? $1,000 an ounce. So I'll, I'll send you the link for it so you can put it in the show notes. It's a... Uh, but they actually advertise, 3M actually advertises it on their website. Now, I find that something that's more pure alcohol seems to work better, So, uh, or at least for me. And maybe it won't work better than $1,000 an ounce stuff, but it's going to work better for my clients than $1,000 an ounce. Yeah. So uh, we'll have a whole new pricing scheme if you want me to use $1,000 an ounce. Oh, um, yeah, totally. Well, this is like two ends of the spectrum here. Yeah, I find it still easier than cleaning heads most of the time. I'll still try to actually go to a donor head um, mm-hmm. so that I'm not having to deal with that. And that works a lot. Uh, your problem is usually pretty close to the same. You've already moved your heads out, and you've got to clean it up. And your problem is usually the alignment of okay. the head assembly more than anything else. Um, but, yeah, it's very expensive to use um, 3M's cleaner <laughs> for that particular process. I can't believe they sell it for that much. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of money, um, and especially if you had to like soak your heads in it or something too, um, trying to clean them up. Right. But uh, but like I said, I'll give you that for the show notes and stuff. You can see it. Okay. But, but um, how about just for circuit boards? Um, for circuit boards, I use a, the spray cleaner okay. for from, from the electron. Yeah, right. I've been using that primarily, um, and you know, and still the old school stuff still works a lot of times too. Like you just want to clean your connectors and make sure that you're good. So sometimes an eraser still works. And you still do same kind of thing we used to do with isocards, um, but most of the time, if the board is that badly damaged, I have an air desoldering gun, basically a piece of equipment that actually you unsolder with air, and then you move a chip over. And I I seem to do that a lot these days. It seems hmm. to be fairly common for me just to remove a chip and move it to something else that looks like it's too damaged. So how uh, hard is it to do that in air soldering? It's like a minute and a half. It's awesome. Really? It is. Uh, see, Chip Quick's really cool, and Chip Quick will do the job cheap and inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got to tell you, an air desoldering station, a rework station, is much better. Much from a time standpoint, um, it's also going to cut your time down. Like with Chip Quick, I could probably do a job in you know now probably ten minutes. Uh, with an air desoldering uh, rework station, minute and a half, two minutes. Wow. And I don't really have to touch it. Like I don't make it worse. You don't, you know, like uh, like your videos on that you do on your laptop stuff. I saw, you know, you're because you're doing the curious inventor stuff, and you're showing theirs, and they go through the whole thing of how you're reworking it, and you're having to unsolder and then retouch up everything. You don't have to do that with a rework station at all. Um, basically, when it heats up. It, it'll basically pop right off. You don't really have to do anything except mm-hmm. put flux on it. And then you put flux back on the board, you put it back on, and you let it sit there. And typically it will actually reconnect on its own back into the original solder. So it works really smoothly. You mean with not just with the flux you're talking about? You only use the flux. Most of the time on those boards, okay. I'm only having to use the flux to wow. touch up. To wow. actually get it so that it, the, it will heat up enough that I can pull the chip off. And then when I put it back on, I'm just putting flex back on, and some of the original solder that's on the board from the previous removal will still be there just enough to make contact, and nice. the board will work. Nice. And so uh, very seldom. Now, I do have a microscope, 
and I use a microscope to touch up very small, the very small legs. And you'd be amazed at what you can see under a microscope uh, because there are times that you don't even realize that there's like a small wire that's actually running between two things and you can't see it. Really? Um, and you can see it with a microscope. So you should really look at a microscope. You'll probably love it. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that might be neat for some of my laptop repair jobs. Yeah. All right. Well, they're fairly affordable these days. You can get a pretty powerful microscope for like 300 bucks now. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting. All right, that covers the underwater thing. Anything else you wanted to add to that, or should we go to the next next part? No, uh, just pretty much. You know, any of the natural disasters are going to be a problem. You know, uh, yeah. even even like uh, physical damage where it's been like tossed in a tornado or something, uh, you're still looking at most of the same processes. Okay. All right. Cool. Next thing he asked is recovering data from an SD card that no longer shows the correct CHS information. And uh, we might as well go over what CHS means to start off in case anybody cylinders, knows. Cylinders, heads, and sectors. So that's the uh, mathematical formula that was originally used for hard drives for calculating how big and what the dimensions and where the content is basically on the drive. Um, you know, we've moved to LBAs. And so LBAs <clears throat> is a modification of the original formula. It doesn't go away. It's just that there's a new way of calculating the data. The formula has been increased to account for LBA blocks instead of doing cylinders, heads, and sectors. Um, and now, because basically everything is logical uh, and virtual from a standpoint of where data is laid out, it doesn't make sense anyway. It certainly doesn't make sense for them to call it that for um, a solid-state device like a SD card anyway because there is no heads right. from that. What, what does LBA stand for? Uh, logical block addressing. Okay. So uh, it we we dealt with logical block addressing. Basically, what we're looking at is in the older days, the earlier days when we had up to like 504 meg drives, uh, we basically used CHS. And you remember we used to have this big giant book that had tables in it, and you had to go look up what your parameters were for the drives and stuff. Uh, and we had three different methods of accounting for what the size was and what we were putting in the drive from that standpoint. But we got to a spot where okay, it's too big. And now we can no longer use the same formula because we only had a certain number of bits that we could store information in, and now we can't count that high. Hmm. Um, and so there was another segment in between that did a translation table between 500 gigs and eight. Uh, I'm sorry, 500 megs and eight gigs. So once we hit eight gigs, we had this other barrier. Uh, and then they decide, well, why don't we go to LBAs, which is something similar to what SCSI had even before us, which says instead of of breaking down head sectors and cylinders in their location and trying to find where the data is, why don't we just count everything sequentially? And so now we'll just have a sequential sequential number, and it'll be from zero to our maximum number. And hmm. when we request it, the drive will do the calculation and figure out where that data is on its own and go and get it from its location rather than us having to worry about, oh, is it in this head, on this platter, in this location? right. right. So they basically ended up using CHS as just a bunch of numbers that they could put together to calculate a higher number and figure out where these numbers are going to be. So uh, so once we got to LBA, which is at – once we had 8 gigs, we went to this new method of doing LBA. Mm-hmm. We did something called LBA 28-bit mode. So LBA 28-bit mode was fine up until we reached 137 gigs. At 137 gigs, we could no longer use that number because – 28 bits is the most that it's going to store for 137 gigs. So we went to a new method, which is called LBA 48-bit. So these are all in the eight, in the ATA specs. So mm-hmm. th- that was something like ATA spec 4 or something like that that we uh, we went to LBA f- uh, 48-bit. Um, and so that allows us to continue forward into the you know uh, 16 edibytes or something like that. I'd have to actually look up and tell you what the highest number is, but some, it's a very large number. Um, I've had I've had computers that, that, that older computers tell me that I can't format a drive larger than I think it, the number was 137. Right? Is it the, the same thing? It, you can't have a certain file system that size, or? Well, yeah, but in that case, it was a BIOS update. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. So, uh, so the BIOS didn't have the calculation to deal with right. 48 bit versus 28 bit. Right. So, therefore, and sometimes that happens even in data recovery. We get drives in for data recovery that was, you know, somebody had a 400 gig hard drive and it was in a machine and it had data on it. They put it in an older machine and tried to read the data off of it. And all of a sudden, it will show up as 137 gigs and they can no longer see the rest of the data. <laughs> but everything will be fine up to 137 right. gigs. And so basically what ends up happening is in the MBR, we have a space, and it basically calculates where the beginning and ending of the partition's locations are. You have a – it actually does a maximum count is what it does. It starts with um, starts with your starting uh, sector for your, for your beginning of your partition, and then it's 
just has a size that says how big it is after that. And so we have a maximum size that could be written in that table, okay. which is still our limiting factor for uh, for our partitions being uh, 2.2 terabytes. You know, we have a two terabyte limitation, even though we are now going to have hard drives that are, you know, three terabytes. Right. We're limited to a two terabyte partition because the MBR has a maximum amount that it can store there is the highest it can count. So what do we do now? We have to go to a GUID partition structure. So now here's our problem. See, I, I kind of predict that this is going to be probably by the end of this year is going to be like a revolution to get rid of all our old computers and to move forward because two things have to happen. Um, now, if you're already using a Mac, you're already using GPT. So you're already using the GUID partition structure. Mm-hmm. So what it is, is a, it's, a, it's a big table. And this big table is broken down into these different GUID numbers. So they're um, uh, um, a unique ident- identifier is what GUID stands for. So it's a guaranteed unique identifier. So um, it's it's already broken down in this table. And what they did was they put a and 512 bytes is our MBR. So at the beginning of our hard drive, we have a piece of code that loads and then it has a partition table. And so that sits in the first 512 for our bootloader. Uh that 512 still exists on the drive. It's just really not used. It's only used now in like a Mac or something like that by, you know, Linux or something wanting to boot on a boot disk or, or something along those lines. So they sync the GPT structure with the MBR. Okay. But the MBR is there to protect the GPT table. So the idea was if you have an older tool and it doesn't know that you have a GPT because it doesn't know anything about the GUID partition structure, if it wrote something to the MBR – it would it would ruin the the drive if that was where the GPT sat. Okay. So they created this 512 byte sector that still sits there, and it just ignores it. It just doesn't use it at all. So you keep writing stuff there, mm-hmm. and nothing happens to it. So the problem on Windows machines is even though Mac moved to it in 2006, Windows machines really haven't moved to it. You you have um 64 bit Vista or or uh, 2003, 2008 server, and now with Windows 7 supports GPT. Um, so what will be the limitation by not moving to it? Are the size of our hard drives? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, the size of a single partition. Uh, otherwise, you have to start doing things like binding two partitions together mm, to see. make one virtual volume. Right. And you know how people hate that. I mean, this is the same thing that we did back in the day when you would have, oh, here's my 33 meg. You know, you, you know they, they had partitions, a 32 gig partition for fat tables and, you know, things were were extended beyond that, they would end up with two partitions or something like that. I mean, right. we, we've had days where people would have a laptop that had a C and a D drive, and they would complain about it all the and time. Those days aren't that long ago. I mean, they were still doing Acer was doing that, and Sony was doing that a couple of years ago. Yeah, right. I mean, there's there's good reasons to separate yourself from your OS into your data, but Windows doesn't do a good job of doing that. Uh, Plus, consumers least. don't know how to do that. Well, they want one drive, and they just want that drive to right. be the maximum size it is. So right. if I buy a three-terabyte drive, I want my three-terabyte to be my user's drive. So, right. so there will be a big move. Now, it won't be big, it won't be a big problem for laptops because they update so often mm-hmm. you know, that people are throwing them away and getting a new one. Um, the issue is, is that when you switch to a good partition table, you also have to switch the bias. It's no longer a bias. You've got to go to EFI. So now – Now, what's that? Yeah. EFI is a replacement for the BIOS. It's basically a uh, uh, it's extensible firmware interface. So you have the ability to reprogram a – it's basically like user code in your BIOS. Remember how at some point in time they had the BIOS and you could make your own, you could put your own graphics in there and stuff, and so it would mm-hmm. boot up. It would have your HP yeah. logo or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody was really big about programming their own BIOS. Yeah. Well, the reality is, is that that's what EFI is. EFI is a way for you to have your own code and and do custom things to how your machine processes the data and have some sort of protection or something for it. So uh, so it's a it's a replacement. It's the ability for you to have some code that runs in your in your instead of your bias. And Max use that right. Max use that now. Uh, some machines do it, but the big move is to do this. You. Uh, UEFI now, which is a universal EFI or something like instead of of just having EFI as your as your bias, have this extended version of an EFI. And so there now is um, some other boards are starting to come out with this now. There's still some some patches and some stuff you can do, but you'll start seeing more and more about this uh, as time goes on. That there's going to be a little bit more talk about having EFI instead of this and getting rid of this legacy. GPT or uh, MBR and moving to the GPT partition structure hmm. instead. Hmm. 
So, uh, so there's going to be a big move, I think, probably this year as we start seeing larger drives. Um, we've got one other thing. And so a couple of things may happen all at once. We talked about light peak before. And so the idea that Intel is trying to move um, to this uh, fiber interface on your motherboard so that we can communicate faster with our devices. And if they are able to convince hard drive manufacturers to also go to light peak, there may be a move at the same time to do the EFI and the and light peak at the same time. It'll become unnoticeable to the end user. They'll end up with new machine, faster communication, a three terabyte drive will have you know light peak on it, and we'll just plug it in, and no one will know the difference. <laughs> and your operating system will just support it because you know everybody's starting to move to Windows Seven. I think that's mm-hmm. they're actually doing a good job of trying to push people to Windows Seven. Mm-hmm. I think, and and it, it's a fairly decent replacement for XP. I, I can see XP's number. You know, days are numbered now. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so, so too. Yeah. Now, light peak. Do you think that's a good technology? It looks fantastic. Uh, I mean, other than the demo videos and stuff Intel has done, I don't really know much about it except for I I hate it from a standpoint of I've got, you know, $75,000 in data recovery equipment that's all based upon the same interface. And I pretty much have to start all over again. And who knows how much it's going to cost for, right. you know, a, a, a transceiver for light peak technology or something. We'll probably come up with some bridge boards or something. But I don't know how we're going to communicate with the drive currently. And if they change the technology and we move that direction, it will be fairly costly for me. For you. But, <laughs> but I would prefer to see the newer. I mean, I'm not going to like hang back and say, well, let's not do this because, you know, that's not cool or right, it's going to cost me right. some money. I want new technology. I mean, let's face it, computer people like the world of change. <laughs> so... Well, they need they want to buy the newest and greatest. That's what it is. Yeah. I it's think always that, about I, faster. It's got to be yeah. faster, faster and better. Yeah. I think that's what drives the the technology. Uh, the whole industry is just geeks. Uh, geeks with the latest and greatest thing, and they get bored with right. their old toys. Well, it's the gamers, you know. If, yeah. the, if it, it, you've got to be able to play the you know the newest, fastest, best game ever. So you got to play your Call of Duty, you know, Modern Warfare Two yeah. in the highest quality. That you, you know, back in the day, it was okay to look at ten twenty four. We were happy if we had ten twenty four right. by seven sixty eight. Right. We could play a game at sixty frames. But now it's like, well, it's got to be at you know. Twenty five, forty seven. Multiple multiple monitors. Right. Yeah. Multiple monitors with a left and a right view. Well, I mean, we did have that before, though. Actually, uh, was it Doom? Doom or something had where you could put two machines beside you and you could link them all together and you could see left and right. Did you? Did it really? I wasn't a big gamer, so I don't know. Oh, it was awesome. I remember. I mean, I had you know three or four machines at the time, and we we had Voodoo cards at the time or something. Really? So uh, those 3D cards. And uh, I remember setting up a network just so that I could see left and right. <laughs> I don't remember if it was Doom or if it was Quake. Uh, I'm sure that somebody will. I guess I could, I could probably you know, Google it right now um, and tell you. But I don't. I don't remember any other games having that already set up for them. Maybe um, you know, maybe Flight Sims or something like that. Yeah, I, I right. remember you know Microsoft Flight Sims have a left and a right and a rear or something. Um, and you can set it up on each different on a different monitor. Yeah, it's a well. It was actually a completely different machine, and if you could put your oh your, man, like they were networked together, and so left and right and center, and so uh, um, that's I'm trying crazy. to multi monitor. I don't remember it was, but I'm talking like '93 or something. Yeah, yeah. And it was really cool that I remember it being there. Um, Did it work good when you had Doom hooked up like that? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was fantastic. I'm just trying to remember if it was Doom or if it was Quake that was the first. I think it was. I was pretty sure it was Doom. Did this give you like an unfair advantage? Well, of course. You didn't have to like turn because you know in those games at the at the in the day if you were playing multiplayer and mm-hmm. you had to turn, yeah. it took a lot of frames to get to turn so that you could do that. But if your machines were still synchronized, you could just turn your physical head and see somebody coming down a hall <laughs> while you were running by. <laughs> so awesome. uh, I'm I'm just trying to remember if because it wouldn't have been called multi monitor. It would have been called you know. Multi view, yeah, multi system view or something. System or multi view or uh, I don't, I don't remember. I was looking to see if I could find it on. If anybody you know, does know the answer to that, send us, send it to us at uh, mail. I remember so. doing it, but there was such a blur between you know the games that ID made, doing Quake and doing Doom, that it's kind of hard to tell what which yeah. one was, which one was the difference. But we're looking at like ninety three or so. Did you ever uh, read Masters of Doom, the book about id Software? 
Um, no, not. Oh, it's a great story because I, I wasn't a great gamer, a big gamer, but I loved listening to uh, how they came about and John Carmack and John Romero and what went on between those guys and like how much of gen- how genius these guys were. Yeah, awesome. Book. No, I think John Carmack is is one of the top, and you know, it's uh, I would like to see more good stuff come out of him, but I'm sure he's probably tired by now. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, he's been doing it for so long. I'm tired of it. Seriously, and, I remember at the uh, end of the book, he was he lost interest in gaming, and he he was trying to join that uh, build something for the X con. What's it called? The X Prize, X contest where you you, you uh, the plane the spaceship. Yeah, you launch something into space. Yeah. yeah. Right. I thought that they did that. Like it cost them like ten million, but they made one million doing it or something. I mean. I thought they had done that. Really? Right? I don't yeah, know. Some, I don't know how it ended up. Alan or somebody was involved in it, but uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, I think I think there. I I do know, and this would you know probably be pretty cool to you that Next was one of the boxes that they used to do some of the compiling or something for like again. I don't. I think it was Quake at the time uh, because it was a uh, an object oriented platform, and they could compile code for different operating systems. And you now know Next to be Mac OS ten. Oh, really? Yeah, but they used that to actually produce their software and to do because of the way it was compiling data or did something. So no uh, it was used to actually make it. But yeah, it's did Apple create that or? Well, next was Steve Jobs' other company after he got kicked out. Remember, uh, he got kicked out of Apple and he went and started Next and it's BSD, which you now know because a lot of people say, well, Apple bought Next and then Steve Jobs came back and he you know kept going with it, whatever. But the other side of the coin is that most people go, it was really awesome that Next acquired Apple. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I wonder anyway. who's going to admit that. <laughs> well, I mean, everybody knows that Mac OS X and Steve Jobs, that was the whole point of him right. coming back, was they had to acquire his company. And so, uh, you know, however you look at it, it, it wouldn't have been the success it was today. I mean, in 97, it was a complete failure. Apple was, let's face it, it was like what, a, a one cent per its share or something. Yeah. It was ridiculous. It was, there was, no one thought they were ever going to make it back. And if it wasn't for Steve Jobs, and I know a lot of people go that, like Steve Jobs didn't do it. Well, and it didn't matter that Microsoft put $150 million into Apple to bring it back or whatever, but it did matter because hmm. no matter what you say, if you don't have Office on the Mac, you lose a big portion of right. your business, no right. matter what. And so, and, and I think it's again, stupid for, for, you know, Microsoft and Apple to even have a quarrel about this because Microsoft sells software Mm -hmm. primarily. It doesn't matter if it's on windows. If you can't get it on windows and you can't make money that way, you should still make money by selling office. Right. That sounds like a good deal to me. Right. So get them coming and going. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange relationship. They definitely have. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you from doing like troubleshooting and stuff that the Mac is nowhere near as good as Windows is at doing. And and I don't want to hear like from every Mac fanboy because I use I use them both, and I primarily carry a Mac with me. That's my majority of stuff, and most of my presentation stuff is done on Mac. But when it comes to things like Active Directory and doing you know work together based on a server and equipment right. and troubleshooting a problem, Windows has Mac beat hands down. Like what is, what is what is good about PC as far as troubleshooting? Well, all right, so uh, I guess maybe, and this this may be because, of course, they did have problems, and there was such a large quantity of machines and variety of hardware out there that they came up with ways of doing logging at boot time that gives you a more complex list or that you can actually track things down a little bit better about fixing a particular problem. Or even things like you go to install a driver and you want to do a, you know, a rollback for your driver. We have that now in Windows that we can actually do a system restore or something. But we have something much more complex than what you have in a Mac OS, which is uh, for – and this is great for data recovery too. And a lot of people don't even know it's there. Microsoft does a terrible job of trying to tell people about it. But in um, shadows. So we have disk shadows. And from a data recovery perspective – your first job is to do whatever you can to prevent the data from being lost, especially as an IT guy. So, for instance, on a Mac, basically it's a single-user system. However you look at a Mac, it's really not a networked system. It is not integrated with Active Directory and stuff the way and, – and, again, I'm going to get a whole bunch of people going to send me, like, horrible emails about this. But the fact of the matter is is that it really doesn't have the controls for group policies and for editing and for handling those functions. Mm-hmm. It's treated as a single-user system. And so you have, you know, uh, for, for backup, basically, you're looking at being able to do Time Machine. All Time Machine is is a backup of your files. So, for instance, let's say you want to go install a driver, 
And anybody who doesn't believe me, try this right now. All you have to do is install Snow Leopard and Snow Leopard 64-bit. Some of the drivers have not been written for 64-bit, and some of the drivers that you will install will screw up your system, <laughs> and you will spend days, if not weeks, trying to figure out what your problem is. Uh, for me, it's only a couple hours, but still. Um, <laughs> go install eSATA drivers. Go find an eSATA card off the shelf so that you can put in your Mac that you can install your – because you want to have eSATA. I mean, that's a cool thing to do, especially mm-hmm. if you're doing data recovery. But all the drivers will still be for like 32-bit OS, and it will cause your machine to hang up or panic or fail or whatever. Try removing those drivers. You'll find out what I mean. Because there's no easy – there's no rollback. There's no – if once the patches are rolled out for the machine, there's no way to roll back what's mm-hmm. already happened. The mm-hmm. only way you can do it is to go back to a time machine backup. Whereas on Windows machines, we have, we have system restore, and even more than that, because to me, Time Machine, yeah, sure, it's a backup system. But what it should really have is a shadow because this is awesome when you really think about it. You're carrying your laptop around. You open your, your PowerPoint document. You highlight it, everything, and you hit the delete button by accident. And you, and you close the document, and it's saved. Now what do you do? See, on Windows, either Vista or uh, – now on the servers, they have it as well. It's 2003, 2008. Both have uh, shadows. Uh, where you can turn them on for servers for shares, and I'll talk about that in a second. But X- XP doesn't have it. XP doesn't have it, but uh, but XP on a server can use it. Okay. So, and that's a valuable component. That's something very valuable that I need to make sure people understand if they're going to deal with data recovery. That there's a cool way to do this. The point is, is that so you're on your machine, mm-hmm. you right click on on the document or the folder, and you say show me previous copies. So if you're on Windows Seven or Vista, now they say the home versions don't have it in it that you can't right-click on it and say, yeah. show me previous versions. Yeah. All they don't have is the interface. They still do the same function. So they're still creating deltas of your files, and they're storing them in a separate area, in a reserved area on your hard drive. And you can go back through these snapshots and look at that things that have already happened. It basically stores delta of all your changes. And so you can roll back your functions. So if you have this PowerPoint presentation you accidentally wiped, and you right-click and you say, show me previous versions, you'll see all the previous versions that your machine saved on your drive, and you can go back to one of your previous versions. Hmm. It's like a live backup. And so Ultimate and the Business Editions have the interface built in. On the home and the premium edition, on the home and the, the, the two whatever home versions they are, you have to use, you can use a free tool that's called Shadow Explorer. And Shadow Explorer will go into the machine and show you your previous snapshots, and you can go back and roll back uh, to where you were before. So it's not just drivers. Uh, once you get to Vista and Windows 7, it wasn't just for drivers. The one that was in XP was primarily just for drivers. Uh-huh. It was just, I want, to, uh, I want to update a driver, something crashed my machine, and I can roll back. Right, right. And so Mac doesn't have anything like that. <laughs> there, is no, there is no go back. Um, which is another point. I mean, we have, we, and it's kind of a dead product now, but go back for Windows. When you really think about this concept and what it did, it was kind of what we're doing with virtual machines now. With virtual machines, you could take snapshots for testing. So, like, you could test a function, you could save something in its current state, and then you could go back and review it in its state again. So, you right. can keep going back to where you were right, before. Right. Um, and so, in Windows, we have go back, we have restore, we have... There's another tool called Deep Freeze. Deep Freeze is great for people who run into problems where, you know, viruses and stuff attack your machine all the time. Uh, have you ever heard of Deep Freeze? Is that like steady state or? Uh, I, I don't know what steady state is, but Deep Freeze freezes the state of your machine. And you get a user area that's called a thawed area, and you can store your documents and stuff there so you can do your updates. Mm-hmm. But every time the machine reboots, any changes that you have made will revert the machine back to its original state. Yeah, I think that's like steady state. Okay. So, and there are several of them for Windows that have existed in the past and equipment to do that. On Macs, the only one that I know of is Deep Freeze. Uh, it's a little cumbersome to use and survive on for updates and things. But um, if you have you know, people who constantly are getting viruses or something like right. that on a Windows machine, right. it's a great way to actually lock down your network, especially if you're primarily forcing people to use network drives. You can keep your machine at a current running state that never gets destroyed, hmm. and they're always saving their data on a network drive. That's neat. So, uh, but what I want to say about you know data recovery and the server versions, um, because you have to manually enable the shadow copies mm-hmm. for shared drives, and if you do that, you will save yourself all those tape nightmares. You know where uh, where if you're the administrator of a network and you have a shared drive, and let's say everybody uses all their shared documents on the drive, and it's a constant thing that like a secretary will accidentally delete a version of her 
you know, especially if you're like in a law office or something like that, she'll highlight or make a change and she really needs to go back to the previous change. Mm -hmm. She has to call the IT guy. He's got to go into the tape and restore the tape from last night or whatever. Well, on a server, you can set a separate drive or separate area of a drive up for the shadow copy. And you can have, you have to initiate a trigger. So you have to do what a schedule basically that says, I want the shadow copy to take a snapshot every three hours or something like that. And it'll save a separate setup of that, a separate copy of the shares in this area that you have designated. So she could be on a network drive on, you know, on your Z drive or whatever, right click on a file and say, show me previous copy. So if you have that enabled, even XP will show you the previous versions of the document. And so if you have somebody who's constantly doing that and they constantly deleting or changing their document, you can restore that previous documents to that state. Hmm. She can just by enabling this function, turning it on and starting the schedule. Does it work um, with like these autosave features? Like say Microsoft, doesn't Microsoft Word have like an autosave or like um Yeah, yeah, it works perfectly with all the, it doesn't okay. matter what the document is. Okay. It saves all of the versions of that. It's not a Microsoft function only. Okay. But yes, you're, you're right, versioning inside of the Microsoft documents. But this is, this is a snapshot at, the, at a delta, at a lower level than that. Hmm. So that you can restore your previous document to a previous but state. But you have to turn it on. You have to, on a server, you have to turn it on and establish an area for you to preserve that space. It's not a big deal. Uh, you, just, you just have to know it's a VSS admin is what you use to do that, VSS admin. It's the same basic function, that something for snapshotting, like a um, backup exec or something like that uses for doing a tape backup and takes a snapshot and then spools it off the tape. That's basically the same idea, but there's ways of doing this, and that they added the interface into XP so that you could be a client on the network and go back and use those previous versions. But I guarantee that there's somebody out there who is constantly having to restore a file from tape because <laughs> their secretaries blow it away or change something, and they need it by this minute. Right. Because you could save yourself a lot of hassle and a lot of da- – it's still data recovery even if it's coming from tape. You're still doing a restore of some function. Um, they don't have it, and they need it. So right. you can eliminate that process a lot. So hmm. that's neat. I bet a lot of people are going to be happy to hear about that, especially since yeah. it's a and, it's a plus one for Windows. Well, and for you and doing your laptop repairs and stuff like that, you might want to take a look at Shadow Explorer too, because if somebody brings in something that just got corrupt or a virus or something like that, and you can go back to a snapshot the day before it happened, right. it may. I mean, it's not just a system restore function necessarily. You can actually go and retrieve data and wow. stuff too. I, so, I could have used that when I had my shop several times. Yeah, and it may come up again. <laughs> well, it's good advice, and that's that. I think that covers the second part of his question. Does it recovering um, recovering data from an SD card? Well, we didn't really hit that. Um, pretty much the idea with because uh, we only hit the CHS component. Right. We never really hit the 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 problem with uh, SD cards is that they're solid state. Solid state is still a struggle for people to do a data recovery from. Um, if the if the card is still functional under logical conditions, you can still image it. You can still do the same thing you would do with any other hard drive or a data recovery. If it's not showing up and it's not physically mounting and you can't use it, then we're actually at a spot where, like I have the equipment, the flash equipment to actually remove a chip and to read the chip. The problem is, is that there's about 18 different encoding schemes for solid-state cards and for solid-state devices, and, it, and it's a multitude of different settings. And it's, it's very, very cumbersome to try to do a recovery from it. Not that you can't. I'm just saying that the percentage of success is going down right now because there's only a handful of people in the country who can even do this. And I've been struggling with it for months now trying to get to a spot where I can read the chip directly mm-hmm. and then reinterpret the chip. Right. And uh, and I, I can on some, but hmm. it's rare on all of them to actually – it really depends. Like you can actually have a USB memory stick that was made in uh, the United States and it has the exact same model number, same chips and everything – as one that was made in Europe. And the two are going to store data differently hmm. on the solid-state device. So it's a very, very difficult task, and I'm just going to tell you you're going to have to send it to a professional to do that. And uh, there's a lot of people who are touting they do solid-state repairs, but what they really mean is, yeah, we can read a logical problem, but we can't repair the physical problem. And so you have to kind of watch out for that. Very few of them are going to be able to do the physical repair. I really only know of maybe four uh, in the world that can actually accomplish the job right now. And that the rest of the vendors and a lot of the other people I've seen um, 
I don't want to say are liars, but uh, aren't telling the full truth. Well, can you really do it? Letting... Should they send it to you? I have done a few. I'm not going to tell you that it's a perfect world. It is definitely not a perfect world, but I will be honest with the person and tell them what their state is. Okay. And before we get to a spot where we actually have to remove the chip, you know, that's the nice thing about having a, an air workstation too, is that I can remove chips cleanly and read them. But the problem isn't reading the chip. I can read almost every chip. Yeah. The problem is reinterpreting the content on the chip because of the way that it's stored. I have a solid state video that I have put out there on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube or you go to myharddrivedive.com, you go to presentation page and look for solid state that explains better some of the functions and what's actually happening on the chip. But okay. you can think of it a lot like defragmentation, but fragmentation happens at a much lower level and you can't tell where it goes. You can't tell what goes together because the chip is the only thing that knew. Hmm. Nothing else knows. So it's I not see. like there's a file system that tells right. you uh, where the files are like there is for NTFS. Uh, you're at a lower level where things don't work quite as good. Okay. So, Great. so much more difficult. Okay. And that brings us to the last part of the question. He says, uh, recovering data from an NTFS partition that was formatted as EXT3. Okay. All right. So uh, most of the time, so for instance, if an NTFS is formatted, basically there's only usually a couple of uh, records in a table that are lost. Um, Unless it's the new Windows long format, Uh, Vista and Windows 7 both do a long format. When you leave the default set for long format now, they both will wipe the drive. Completely. So previously, uh, and Vista wasn't a big problem because it wasn't widely deployed. Um, XP, when XP would do a long format, all mm-hmm. it would do is check for bad blocks. Right. But now Windows 7 and Vista in a long format wipe the drive. Why, why do they do that? Um, I'm sure it's for a security reason because, you know, everybody's always talking about Microsoft and security and problems and okay. personal data still on the drive. And right. I sold my computer and I formatted it, but my data was not okay. gone and I thought it was. Is it how, uh, how good of a job do they do wiping it? Is it like like the Department of Defense wiped or? No, it's a, you only really need one pass. Even Department of Defense stuff is, uh, you know, the, that's that's um, 5250 rules of sanitation. So there's a, a standard for sanitation, which is called 5250, uh, which is three passes or whatever. But it's it's all about the the quality of what's getting erased and one single pass okay. of overriding data with zeros or ones or whatever you want to, you know, it's not really zeros and ones, but uh, whatever's written there uh, will destroy the content. Um, you cannot do a data recovery. You cannot, a, a there is nobody who does any kind of logical software recovery that will be able to do the job with that. Okay. So it's gone with one pass. Gotcha. Here, no more recovery. And so if people leave the default for the long format, it will be gone. If you do the checkbox where it says quick format, then the quick format just erases a couple of uh, records in the beginning of the MFT record. If you were just doing an, a new MFT, and then it would overwrite the file system with the same stuff as the previous file system. So you have a really good chance for recovery mm-hmm. if you were overwriting NTFS with NTFS. So if Windows was overwriting Windows and you were reinstalling Windows, you would have a good chance of recovery. Okay. With EXT, now, you've got now what is bit- EXT? EXT is a, a Linux uh, journaling file system. So EXT is what the default Linux. Uh, there are several different versions. So again, I don't want like hate letters from everybody, but <laughs> EXT is the most common of the Linux um, uh, file systems that would be installed in your eye. At one point in time, people were trying to move to Riser and a couple of others, but since Han Riser killed his wife and he's put in jail, there's not much chance for like new updates or anything. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, so there's a whole big story in California or something about that. And I mean, I'm sorry that happened, but I mean, you, I, that, yeah, I, I could see yeah, that that's not going to get updates right. on well, that. They, that's why they call, you know, Riser the murdering file system. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, uh, so so uh, EXT is the most common of the file systems that are getting written, and 3 is version 3. It's a journaling uh, operation. So EXT2 didn't do journaling. EXT3 does journaling. Okay. Journaling is uh, transactions get backed out if the file system crashes. So like if your machine crashes, it'll try to roll back whatever the last uh, item was. And so uh, all the stuff for EXT3 is all based on EXT2. And so it's just journaling is turned on. There's a couple of other functions that have changed. Okay. But, um, now, what if what if um, it was for uh, drive was formatted with ext three? Well, all right. So there is going to be content that's going to be left behind on the drive. Yeah. But the the thing is, is that more of your content that would have been the tables and the stuff that would have been preserved because Windows would have known a certain layout mm-hmm. uh, is not going to be preserved under Linux when it's reformatted. Now, 
that doesn't mean there won't be files that you can't recover. Usually what ends up meaning, though, is that you're going to lose what's called the metadata. See, in Windows, a file that gets written someplace is still a file all by itself, it, but nothing is known about it. It doesn't know the file name or what directory structure it might be in or anything like that. It's raw data. And so basically you can find the file based on what's called a header. So let's say it's a JPEG. The beginning of a JPEG is always FFD8FF, and then you can search for uh, the end of the JPEG, and you can cut that out, and you still have a JPEG. Right, okay. But what you lose is your file name, your dates and times, mm-hmm. things that are not – If you know there is some content for dates and times that's stored inside the JPEG, but the file system itself would lose those dates and times. You wouldn't have that. You could still have a JPEG, but you won't have the structure. So if you had thousands of files broken down into your, you know, your MP3s are all organized in your iTunes directory, you might get your MP3s back, but what you'll get back won't have a name or won't have a structure or something like that. So there'll still be data out there. It's just that that structure will probably be gone because that structure is stored in what's called the MFT, the master file table. So in NTFS, which is the format for Windows, and then MFT is the database that stores the content about your file system. That stuff still sits on the drive and would still exist, uh, even if it was reformatted unless the long wipe was still done. Um, then those files get overwritten too. You don't get the JPEGs or anything back. Hmm. So there's still a chance of recovering your files. You're just not going to be able to find probably your file names, your dates, and your times. You're going to have to carve out files. So that's really the difference between all the software that you have that's out there in the world. Like what makes one software package better than another? It all has to do with this table and how good those headers are defined. Uh, so, for instance, you could write a program that only knows JPEGs, and they call it photo recovery tools. Right. So they would only recover JPEGs. Right. But if you want your QuickBooks file, you're out of luck. Huh. It's not, not going to find it. So that's so, basically what determines how good these programs are. Right, exactly. That how, how in-depth their tables are for start and end. And there is a problem with fragmentation and stuff, and there's very few programs that have really tried to attack that, Mm -hmm. but there are a few, um, which that's a very complicated thing to deal with. Um, So so there's basically two methods that most of these packages use to begin with. Some of them will just start at the beginning and they'll just say, well, do I have a file table? Do I have a FAT or an NTFS or an MFT table to look at to tell me where my files are and to give me some structure back? And then the others will just say, well, I only know what the beginning of the file looks like and the Mm -hmm. end of the file looks like, and so let's scan. And some of them combine those two functions. Hmm. So some of them will say, I'm going to do that. Plus this, you know, whenever you click a box that says like, you know, extended search or something like that, most of that's what they're doing. They're going to go, hey, really quick, let me go and look and see what my file table says. And then I'll go back and I'll scan every single sector of this drive for this beginning and ending sector of all of these different files. I see. So if you're using a Mac and you want to find out more Mac files, because there may be files on a Mac that exist that we do not have in the Windows world, Mm -hmm. then those are instances where it might be better to use a Mac piece of software to search for those after you've made a copy or an image of the drive, because most of them, like, do things to the drive. No Um, kidding. So on a Windows machine, obviously, you want to use something that's, you know, pretty well known that actually will understand most of those tables and do stuff like uh, runtime software makes a a great NTFS package, MFT. Uh, It will basically look at the MFT and rebuild it. Uh, And then there's things like RStudio and stuff that are really good packages as well. So I used to use one called Recover My Files. I I mean, I had Yeah, it's it's pretty decent. It has a pretty decent table and stuff. Uh, It's not my favorite, but... um, but it, it does a good job. Hmm. I, don't, I don't have any quarrels. And it's been around long enough that they've added a lot of the content to the tables. But I, I also like to be able to modify my own tables too. I like to be able to go – because you know, really what happens is let's say you have something that's an unusual file. Let's say you know some database file and there's some SQL database or something that's mm-hmm. not known. Right. Uh, like, you know, I don't know, some fir- like first accounting or something like that might have a database that's not known by these other packages. Well, all I have to do is go and install it on another machine and make a blank database. And then I go in and I can look at the header and I can look at the footer and I can figure out what they're supposed to be myself. So you want to be able to add that to your ta- to I the table? I want to be able to add that to my table. And Dude. so there are tools, forensics uh-huh. tools and other tools that allow me to add those to the table. Huh. Uh, and so there are some that have, you know, like our studios actually has a way that you can actually modify their XML table and add content to it. So that actually will search for files hmm. that you specified. And then right. there's others that are forensics tools like scalpel and foremost and stuff where you can actually do those as well. Hmm. So cool. Yeah. We, I remember one of the earlier episodes, we went over some of the tools for data recovery. Right. 
So if anybody does want to know what what uh, tool Scott likes, just re- listen to the earlier episodes of My Hard Drive Die. Well, it looks like uh, and that was an email from Chris. It looks like that email was pretty much enough material to fill the show. I mean, we yeah. we, we hit all aspects of that email plus um, plus some extra cool stuff and then even some gaming stuff. <laughs> right. That's awesome. So uh, we're going to end off the show. Scott, did you want to give us any last comments? Uh, the best thing I can tell you is that if you're really interested in data recovery or maybe you know maybe this is a time where you want to start a new business, um, my February class is coming up fairly fairly quickly. Uh, today's the 19th when we're recording it, and my the class starts on the 9th. Uh, so it would really be awesome if people in Atlanta want to come and take this class or if you want to fly to Atlanta and take the class. Uh, just go to uh, myharddrivedive.com and click on the class links, and you'll be able to find out more about the class or send me an email. I'll be happy, happy to tell you and look forward to seeing people in class. Sounds good. Well, thanks again, Scott, and we'll see everybody next time. Thanks. Music for My Hard Drive Died is brought to you by Evan King, and you can find him at purevolume.com slash Evan King. He's got some great music over there. Check it out. You can download his songs for free, and I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>